Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where you look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And if you and... can't tell from my voice, I'm very sick and I'm sorry in advance. <laughs> you actually don't sound that scratchy. I think it'll See, be okay. here's the thing though. And this is an aside that maybe no one cares about. But So I posted a new video this morning. Um, the... Uh, Scorsese by Ebert, how Roger saw Marty. And there was two lines I had to re-record for it. Just two very quick ones. And I don't know if anyone can tell, but I can tell my voice sounds different and it drives me up the wall. Well, now you mentioned that everybody else is going to notice it too. Well, this is, you I guess, ruin the video for everyone. That's the, that's my challenge is uh, if, <laughs> if you can pinpoint the two lines that were re-recorded. Um, one of them is not a full sentence. So I'll give that as a hint. It's just part of a sentence. If you can indicate which were re-recorded and message me or comment on the video you'll win my admiration and that's the the greatest prize of all (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so So, dan you got a cold it's cold season it is that means it must be winter sure is. this week we are talking about winter movies and i think it's because we decided that we're not going to call anything holiday movies anymore (laughs) i got yelled at over that last time we can't follow the rules (laughs) Well, you know what? Maybe if Christmas movies didn't suck so hard, we wouldn't have to cheat. (laughs) (laughs) Throwing down the gauntlet. Yeah, I'm saying it. Um, Yeah, but I think it's 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 a good. First of all, it came to mind because where you live, you were having like blizzards by. I am telling you, I am already done with winter. (laughs) It is December first, and I still have four months of this, and I am done with it. (laughs) Is it still really bad? Lots of snow, lots of ice. Yeah, I just again, I drove through a blizzard on Monday and. I just have been shoveling snow every day this week so far. Jeez. See, we had snow for like a couple days and now it's all gone. It's still yeah. cold. It still feels like winter otherwise, but there's no snow. Yeah, we're looking at, I think they said somewhere in the minus 30s tomorrow. So I'm See, looking It's not that to cold that. here. That's, <laughs> ugh, that's gross. Good yeah. luck. So we love winter. Yep. Well, I mean, it's but that's that's kind of what first prompted it. And we've done we've done summer movies before, and winter films are winter is arguably the more cinematic season because you can visualize winter so much easier with snow. True, and it's much harder to visualize heat. Some filmmakers have done it really brilliantly. Spike Lee, in particular, comes to mind. But uh, it is like as much as I I think we both hate snow in real life. In movies, it's wonderful. <laughs> it is. It's one of the most wonderful. There's a Criterion just added a, a whole playlist on their. Um, on their channel of snow westerns and what one we'll talk about a bit later and i think that's just such a delight for the winter season because snow on film looks amazing snow out your window looks like garbage but you know that's 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 how it rolls or from underneath your car tires yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and um i i saw a, a tweet the other day about the shining and how somebody was saying how unrealistic that they would get that much snow overnight and i'm like where are you from? That was a you're comment. not from where I'm from. <laughs> that was one of the Wendy Theory guys' points, is that that's too much snow that one night could fall in. And right, it's like, that's you what must it live was. in L.A. Because yeah. in Colorado, that seems pretty <laughs> average. I will tell you, that is absolutely a possibility. <laughs> if anything, it's, 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 it's too little. There should be way more. <laughs> yeah, that was Monday night. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to talk about winter movies. Um, we got a couple picks each. And we we decided this is a little bit of a bold move, but we decided to take all four of our picks from the 2000 movie Snow Day. 
So <laughs> look forward to that, everybody. Mm-hmm. Is Snow yeah, Day related to Snow Dogs? <laughs> it could be. I don't know. I, I remember watching it. the movie Snow Dogs with Cuba Gooding Jr. a lot in like school. I don't know what educational value the teachers thought it possessed, <laughs> but I don't know. I guess it was just like a comedy you can show to children. So it was the go to. That's that's probably it. And I do think we need to call out that probably the best um, depiction of winter ever put on a film of any kind is probably that scene from the early Simpsons, the snow day scene from the Simpsons mm. where they're all uh, where Bart has to stay in and study. That's and pretty else good is having the best day ever. Yeah, that that's the joys of winter. That's a good example of how winter, how much, how much better winter is when you're a child. And you don't have to deal with like the actual like work of winter of like shoveling snow constantly shovel yeah. or, you know, um, commuting through snow to get to where you need to be for like your job. Like when it's just fun, you go out and play. You don't go out and yep. play when you're 30 and scrape off the windshield every every single morning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, so <laughs> we started off on that positive <laughs> note. Yeah. Our hatred for the season. Let's talk about how we like it in movies. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, let's get into what's my first pick going to be Fargo. Let's talk about Fargo because Fargo is definitely a winter movie. There's mm-hmm. no ifs, ands, or buts, and I think it's a big part of the the visual fabric of the movie too. And Ooh, yeah, yeah, and the uh, the the moment I'm talking about is it's pretty big there too. So this is a comes right after the scene where. You know, the two hired goons are they've got stopped by the cops and then they end up shooting the cop. And the moment that just always grabs me and just gets gets my adrenaline up is when they're basically getting rid of the cop's body. They're trying to, you know, clean up the scene. And Steve Buscemi is like in the moment in the in the middle of dragging the cop off the road and all of a sudden headlights come in and another car is coming and there is no time for them to like hide what they're doing or anything like that. They don't even really try. They're just like, well, this is the situation we're in now. And then you pass them by. And the moment that I absolutely love is you, you look through the, uh, to the driver's side window to see these like completely dumbfounded looks of the, of the, the, people driving by and they're just like mouths agape like what is going on (laughs) (laughs) these poor innocent fools it's one of the great coen brothers like casting of faces like that guy in particular (laughs) is such a perfect like like it's it's pretty great it sells both that like it's a moment of dark humor and it the film like a lot of fargo a lot of coen in particular but fargo especially kind of lean in on like these moments that are both darkly funny, but also really serious. And this moment is like that. And also it could have played more into like the comical aspect of it. And in hindsight it is, but in the moment it's like, like it's so gripping as a thriller. You're just like locked into this moment and feeling, you know, as much as the guy's face is like a dumbfounded G shucks kind of dopey look, you really feel for him. Cause you know, you what's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. You know, and so and like i said that just gets your adrenaline up right away you're like oh that guy is in trouble and then the other thing i like is when they're so then um peter stormare is gets in the car and starts chasing the guy down and 
I like the way that it, that resolves because it's it's not a car chase. I mean, it's a car chase, but it's not, you know, a movie car chase. But this guy's ends up is still way ahead of him at this point. But he knows that he's being chased. And all of a sudden, all you see is you see kind of the headlights swerve a bit and then suddenly nothing. And you're like, oh, that's when like <laughs> he is is the road's probably icy. He's he's trying to get away in bad road conditions. And yeah, next thing you know, it's flipped over on the side in the in the snowbank. Mm-hmm. Um and it's it's very reminiscent of driving, you know, in snowy on snowy roads and snowy fields, and it I think it works really well. So it captures that winter aspect uh really well, but it just, mm-hmm. just it's a real heart pounding moment. Well, and then when the car goes into the like part of why it crashes too is like, and they're all they're all the more stranded is because they're stuck in like a snowbank, so it's harder yeah. to run. Yeah, so they got to dig themselves out, sorta. And the interesting thing is that if like his headlights went out as he crashed, which doesn't really happen, but Peter Stormare probably would have just passed him by. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he w- would not have noticed him, and because it was dark, it was pitch black. Mm-hmm. Um, and without the headlights, he wouldn't have even noticed them. But yeah. it's also a good like that classic feeling of like when you're on a long, empty road and you pass like one other person. And it's just this weird like, I don't know. It's a weird connection of being like we're the only two people in like however much of a radius. And it's it's somewhat somewhat disconcerting just on that basic level. And I think it plays really well into like what the film does overall, which is playing with this idea of you know people being in the wrong place at the wrong time and just the plan never going well (laughs) like like the best laid plans are just destroyed and that's happening here too right like well it's good too because like peter stormare is like the most professional character and yet he's still caught with his pants down in this moment too like even even the smartest guy is still kind of dumb as far as handling this um which uh which cascades elsewhere. You know, it's funny too, because this, this film's also so well, we talked about like them being trapped in the snowbank and then like swerving off because of ice. This film is so good at pinpointing the minor inconveniences of winter. Um, like after, you know, uh, William H. Macy gets basically shot down by his father-in-law and he has to go out to then um, do his car windshield, clean off the windshield. And he has like, a, a tantrum basically and he freaks out and he throws his scraper and he yells yeah. and screams and then there's a beat and he picks it up and has to go back to scraping because like yeah. <laughs> winter don't care about point. your emotional breakdown here like it's still and even like um the fact that you know they're going out and doing these shady um you know ransoming and trying to give money to get this person back and they all have these big giant bulky snowsuits on like it's so uncool in how it depicts this kind of scenario because again like it's winter like Mm -hmm. you know yeah you may have this heightened emotional moment but you still have to go out with the big baggy uh snowsuit because it's cold (laughs) yeah and it's another example of um just how innocent people end up being the victims when with this this kind of criminal stupidity Mm -hmm. that uh that pervades the movie too yeah absolutely um which again is that that actor is so perfect that like you know, there's a buffoonish quality, but not at the expense of, like, you still feel for him. It's not just, like, mm-hmm. mean-spirited and laughing at him. Um, and it ends up being pretty pivotal because that's the, the site that really in, it sparks the investigation. Yeah, um, so. for sure. 
and I mean that's it, the the image of that car and the and the eventual body in the snow. I mean that's iconic. That's like poster worthy and everything. So mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Yeah, Cohen Brothers know how to use their environment. There's no doubt about that. Yes, they do. There's some good winter stuff in uh, True Grit as well. Not as much, but there's a little bit right. that I appreciate. Um, yeah. There well, we speaking go. of actually westerns with snow in them, I suppose I can segue into. Uh, my pick, which is McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And I've noted this in our our Google Doc as the greatest winter fit of all time. Yeah, I had I was like, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Anyone who's seen the film will remember or seen even the Blu-ray cover <clears throat> that uh, McCabe, played by Warren Beatty, just wears this most amazing and bedazzled winter outfit you'll ever see in a, win- in a Western. He's got like this almost like English bowler cap and this nice suit. But then over top is this lush, thick fur that looks like it would keep him so warm and cozy. And it's the kind of look where like every time winter comes around, you think to yourself, could I pull that off? Can I start dressing like this? Cause it is like, it's beautiful. So on a basic level, I love it for that. And I love it for kind of talking about what we're talking about with Fargo with the winter suits. You know, when it comes to winter clothing, especially if you live in a place where it gets really cold, you really have to start thinking about function over fashion. You're not wearing clothes that look nice. You're wearing clothes that will keep you warm. Like my, I have this big beige winter coat that I'm sure is ugly as sin. And it's also huge. I look like the Michelin man when I wear it, but it's warm. (laughs) So it's, it's a, it's a valuable commodity. So there's a certain, like any kid who grows up in Ontario and at Halloween has to ruin their costume by wearing a winter jacket over it, understands the pain of trying to maintain fashion in the face of the elements. So the fact that McCabe can do that is rather admirable. However, I do have reasons for talking about this moment that go a bit deeper than just, I like that coat and I would like to wear it. Because I think this is actually a really subtle way that the film tells you a lot about McCabe's character, who comes into this town and he is a gambler and businessman. He starts up a brothel there that kind of really builds the community and he starts making money. And there's this rumor shrouding him of like, oh, he killed a man at a card game. He's like a gunslinger. You know, he's like um, some sort of like Western mythic figure. And spoilers, he's not at all. He's very much just like sort of a, a meek and mild businessman. He's a con man who thinks he's a lot smarter than he is, who's talked his way through life. And um, the scene that that comes to a head is where, for reasons, a... Uh, strong man has been sent into town on behalf of this corporation to kill McCabe so they can seize control of his business. And in that scene is where the one where after McCabe leaves the bar, the villain whose name is, uh, let me just double check this, uh, Butler, who I love in this film. I think he's an underrated screen villain. I love his just sort of very, very friendly affect. He doesn't really try to be overly imposing. He's just very matter of fact about what he does. But he has this conversation with McCabe and he puts the fear of God into him and McCabe leaves. And um, he starts asking Butler about like the rumors surrounding him. And the bartender says, oh, you know, he killed a guy. And Butler's like, that man, that man's never killed anyone in his life. And it's the one that really firmly states, yeah, no, this guy's not. This is all a myth about who he is. But what I love is that the wardrobe tells you that well in advance. The fact that this guy is not wearing you know, like a poncho or like the sort of like standard Western garb of like a rough and tumble figure. And the fact that the clothes he's wearing are nice and pristine and polished. Like this guy is not someone who's getting physical. This guy is not someone who's getting in life or death scrapes and and coasting by. This is like a very, um, 
he's he's sort of a not necessarily above that, but he he exists in a world that separates itself from that kind of physicality. He's more prim and he's more delicate. And I think the wardrobe's a great way of showing that. Like, and in the scene too, with Butler, it's interesting because Butler's also wearing like thick winter clothes and there's a fur, but the fur on his clothes, it's like matted and faded and ugly. And it looks like he's like he's had to probably wear this for days without like getting it cleaned or replaced. He's gone through water and snow and all this stuff, like had to survive the elements with this. You know, it is function for him where with McCabe, a lot of it is fashion, is to look nice. And it's a really good way of of revealing to the audience before you actually reveal it. This guy is no badass gunslinger. This guy is kind of a pretty boy wannabe who's scraping by on charm. And it really informed, it's informed too by Warren Beatty's performance. He's like, this is maybe his best work. He's so good at playing because he is like naturally charming and charismatic and you can buy him as like the lead, but it also makes sense when you revealed, oh yeah, this guy's a pretty boy who's never actually gotten his hands dirty in his life. You're like, yeah, that, that, that checks out. Um, and I think this is a great way of demonstrating that with his clothes, that as much as I'm bedazzled by the fit because I think it looks great <laughs> and I, I aspire to it, it is also informing the character in a way that I think is uh, really smart and sly. And um I love that when it does finally get revealed, he is wearing that clothes. He's wearing that coat in the scene with Butler and Butler's wearing his. So I do think it is deliberate that Altman is very much putting the costumes in contrast to tell you a lot about who these, who these two men are and uh, what separates them. Yeah. Well said. I like that. I also like how he, like when he sits down with it, it's almost like, it looks like he's drowning in it because like mm-hmm. the first come like, well, right over his head. Um, <laughs> Must be Fox, Oxford. I think it's so. Very yeah. like reddish, orangish. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, and I like. I think that's a good point too. Like he gets kind of swallowed in the outfit. Like there is. He does. It, it's never played as like overtly comical, but there is a sort of absurdist quality of like, because <clears throat> the town too. It's like it exists almost in like a mud pit. Like it's a dirty sort of like, you know. And even like the like it, it's reflective too of his character as someone who's selling this sort of faux glamour. Like he's setting up a, a brothel in in the town, and you know your expectations of what a movie brothel might look like are not like what this is. Like the women he gets are not you know they look like average regular women, and there's like right. a there's a sense of there's a certain spectacle to the house that gets built and a certain presentation of trying to feel like it's really ritzy and classy but it only is in the context of this town and it is yeah. something of an illusion and the 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 wardrobe that uh, McCabe wears is reflective of that as well and you expect in that scene you expect like um Butler to say something about like I was expecting him to say something about the coat because it was such a stark contrast to everybody he doesn't but he sort of does in the way that you pointed out with with his uh gang afterwards mm-hmm. but and i i i did i will tell you when i saw that scene i did think about the coat because it does stand out and i was thinking i'm like hmm yeah these two characters don't match up but then you're also like yeah but this is the wild west and it's winter and they got to stay warm and mm-hmm he's got to use something <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah so i'm like yeah. maybe that was just you know people just accepted weird coats like that just because they just took what they could get but i think I what you're saying is right like i think it was a very deliberate directorial choice yeah he's a pretty boy yeah he is like above this kind of you know physicality and he's gotten by on charm and the sort of sleight of hand of presenting himself in a certain way um 
And that comes across in this scene too, where Butler just asks some very direct questions and gives very direct statements. And he just unravels completely. Like he's, he's, you know, stumbling over his words. He can't form coherent thoughts. He'll quickly make a statement and then backpedal on it. Like he's, and again, like it's, it's a good way of, of um, I think the, the, the codes just really do a great job contrasting that. So, yeah. uh, and still no disrespect to the fit. Cause uh, if I had the money, I would wear that <laughs> every day. Um, yeah. And it does stand out too in like in the realm of like the sort of iconography of the Western. You think about how people dress in those movies. They don't look like McCabe. And that's probably why like the Criterion Blu-ray, for example, that's the cover because it is, it's just him wearing that in the town because it is a striking image that goes against our typical ideas about what cowboys look like. He's not True. technically a cowboy in the strictest sense. There's no cattle in, involved in the, in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, but um yeah, I don't know. I love that coat. So <laughs> it is pretty good. <laughs> and I can't remember. He's not wearing it in the final. No, fight, is he? he's not wearing it. He's wearing. Maybe uh, should have. Maybe. Yeah, it would have been thick enough to stop the bullets. <laughs> That's the real secret. Um, he is wearing a lot of the same clothes, but he's not wearing the fur. I think he's wearing the same hat still. Yeah. So that final scene, too, is like. Because the thing about McCabe and Mrs. Miller, a lot of it's not really a snow western. Like it takes place in, it's not just in winter. A lot of it is cold and like sort of like right. very, I don't know, feeling of like a marsh or something. But there is still grass and like dirt on the ground. It's really not until the third act where winter settles in and that final set piece, which is a sort of cat and mouse chase slash shootout set against the winter, that it really and the winter definitely plays a role in it. Like it is, yes. it's a huge aspect of that. Yeah, piece. I mean, again, like you have people having to climb over snowbanks to get to each other, but you also have the howling wind on the soundtrack consistently. And just visually, it looks uh, immaculate. Like a lot of McCabe and Mrs. Miller isn't technically a snow western, but when it becomes one, it's like the greatest snow western ever made. Um, yeah, it's pretty good. I haven't seen all of the ones. I'm going to try to watch all the ones in the playlist, so maybe I'll change my mind in a month. But right now, <laughs> it's hard to argue with. It's a uh, it's. It's a really neat, like, I like that it's not just a shootout. Like, it's it's almost like this Metal Gear Solid sneaking around kind yeah. of deal. And that was really cool. Like, it's just different and interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's yeah. a good, that too is also feels like a good send-up. Maybe not a send-up, but a good uh, contrast to the typical Western finale where, you know, you always have, you have, like, the showdown in the streets. But even when you have scenes that are more... Um, more prolonged and not just like two figures facing off and firing something like the end of high noon, which I know is an influence on this film. There's still more of like a, or maybe not more of there's less of what you have in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, where it's like this really frantic kind of chase of like, and him kind of bumbling around and doubling back on himself. Um, it's not like completely unheard of. Like high noon definitely does similar stuff. And there are a couple other Westerns here and there, but this one, the way it like, He's kind of, and it's reflective of his character. He's kind of doing the equivalent of hustling in the moment. He knows he can't mm -hmm. face these guys on because it's three of them and one of him for one. But for two, he's not, you know, the man with no name. He's just the sly businessman. So he's, you know, and the fact too that like, we're kind of getting away from the moment now, but like he has the shotgun of his and he lays it down to go climb up the church tower to check out the scenario. And then he comes back down and the priest has taken his gun and he never gets it back. It's like. <laughs> Like he's so like <laughs> the unconventional, unromantic hero, um, which makes him, I think, more relatable. Like I root for him all the more because he's, <clears throat> excuse me, because he's so 
um, ill-equipped for the the threats he's facing. Cause like, even when, when the, the business comes into town and like, we want to buy you out for this much and he's very dismissive of them. You're like, no, John, take the money. Yeah. yeah. It's unfair, but you got to just do it. So. Yeah. And it does tie back. Like when he is sneaking around, it kind of confirms what, what you were saying, like what Butler says about him in that scene. Like he has never killed anybody. And once you start seeing him, he's just like sneaking into this building and running over to the next. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's yeah, probably right. Yeah, he did better than I would do in that scenario. So, credit to him. True. I would probably trip over the snow and blow my head off by mistake. So <laughs> you wouldn't even need to send the guys. <laughs> oh man, yeah, another good use soldier. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm gonna go to um, my next pick because I got to have. When we're talking about winter movies, we got to talk about skiing at some point. <clears throat> so, sure, I could have picked countless Bond movies, but I kind of thought you might do that. I did think about it. <laughs> I was very much like, I don't think I should. Like, I, I do it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so instead, I'm going to go with Force Majeure, which um, is directed by Ostland. What's his first name? Ruben. Ruben Ostland, and came out in 2014. Uh, so it's a movie that's set on a ski hill and um, and of course the whole thing is this there's almost an avalanche and this the one guy runs away from his family during what looks like it's going to be an avalanche and the whole movie kind of pivots on that idea which is an intriguing idea the scene I want to talk about is the scene that's it's kind of like I call it the lounge chair scene and it's so the the main character who's Thomas and he's hanging out with Tormund Giants Bane. I don't I can't remember the character's name, but the, you know, the guy from Game of Thrones with the big red beard, he's in this too. And uh and they're friends, and so they're just relaxing after going through down ski hole a few times. And so they're sitting in these lounge chairs having a beer on what seems to be an outdoor patio, but the I, the scene is set up really neat like it's just a basically the camera is just set in one place and eventually it starts zooming in but so gradually that you don't even really notice that it's zooming in until you're like you realize that they're much closer than they are so the camera work here is interesting but also because they're in these lounge chairs it's focused on these two characters but all the other people that are in the lounge are they're out of the frame in an interesting way. So it'll be like they're, you only see them from their neck down or you only see them, you know, partially in the frame because they're more forward. Um, and so they're not fitting in, in a way that seems very deliberate because it's, it's very much a movie. This, this guy, Thomas, like he's really tackling his own sense of self-identity right because he was just in this crisis and he reacted in a way he didn't expect himself to react and so now he's struggling with what does that mean right so what what does that say about me what do i actually how do i feel about myself now and how are other people perceiving me now and so the fact that it's focusing in on him kind of gets into that internal idea that he's really kind of focusing on himself And then this interesting thing happens where a woman comes over and starts chatting them up and says, she's like, I just want to say that, you know, my friend over there, she, you know, she thinks you're cute. She saw you over and I just wanted to let you know that. And so then she walks away and he's got this smug smile on his face. He's like, yeah, 
cool. Okay. So he starts to feel better about himself. And then in just one of the ultimate dick moves, the woman comes back and says, oh, I just thought I should let you know I made a mistake. The friend wasn't talking about you. She was talking about somebody else and then walks away again. And he just looks like back to just being utterly devastated. <laughs> so it's a it's a funny scene there because you can see like it, it's indicative of this emotional roller coaster that he's that's happening with him this entire movie, like just trying to figure out where he where he sits at this point with anybody around him and himself. Um and I think that, like I said, the camera work is so interesting in this and it it's the cinematography is very well set up in getting at the internal struggle of the, in this guy's head. Uh, and it's also got this interesting, not techno ish, but it's like a, it's like an energetic song that sort of got a techno background. I think it's called um, reload. I think is the name of the song. I don't remember who it's they by. They say freedom a lot in the lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so and it's, so it's an interesting song that's really pumping it up and um, and so that's an interesting contrast too. it does it looks different than most movies that we're used to seeing like you see it and you kind of think instinctually like that doesn't look like like an American film for example it just is different like just in the way it's set up mm-hmm. because I remember back when I when I first saw that like if I saw this I was kind of flipping through you know, the lost art of flipping through channels um, <laughs> and flipping through like the movie channels. And this was playing on there. And this is the scene that was on. And I saw it instant. And I'm like, and I was instantly intrigued by what this movie was just by seeing that scene and seeing, you know, the music and how that played with the camera. And that's what me like seeing that kind of said, okay, I'm going to go back and actually watch this movie. And I did. Nice. Uh, and I like it quite a bit. So. That's cool that you have like an origin story for your moment with your film. <laughs> um, well, it's, there's a lot here. One, I, I like how you point out that like it's like one unbroken take and it's very like simple, just a slow zoom, because I think normally in a in a scene like this where you have the music sort of like is very propulsive and energetic, the rhythm would be dictated by the combination of that in tune with the editing or the camera work. But yeah, in this scene, point. it's really neither. It's like the rhythms of the actors in sync with the music and not in obvious ways, but like when she comes back to say, sorry, it wasn't actually you. That's when like the kind of music, like doesn't cut out, but it's, it's not like sort of pumping as much. It's kind of like doing this sort of slower buildup. So there are, there are spaces where it's like, they're kind of in sync in that way, but they're not as obviously directed as they would be through like cutting or through really erratic camera or really like notable camera movements, which gives it a unique flavor. Um, I hadn't seen this film I still haven't seen the film. I shouldn't say it. Oh, like, you haven't seen it. I haven't seen it, no. Oh. But I did, I watched the scene and immediately I was wondering, is this before or after the avalanche? And it's the fact that it's after makes it way funnier. Because <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure. I'm like, I, I don't know necessarily where this would fit, but it being after is so, so perfect. Um, and it's a good example. I haven't seen this, but I've seen Austin's film since The Square and uh, Triangle of Sadness, both of which I enjoy, especially The Square. I really like that one. But uh, the weird humor he finds in just like strange interactions between people that are like so minor, but like so like, like, as you say, ultimate dick move, like just being like, oh, you're like the hottest guy here. Oh, wait, never mind. She meant someone else. Like it's not actively like aggressive or even that bad a thing, but it's like 
It's like, why do you, that? Yeah, like why you'd fixate on it. It's like that line in Royal Tenenbaums when Owen Wilson's reading his reviews. It's like, is it really necessary to specify when someone's not a genius? Um, <laughs> and there's like a moment <laughs> like that in Triangle of Sadness. It's a much bigger moment, but like the whole first act basically revolves around this fight between this couple over who pays for dinner. And it's like a small right. thing that spirals into, and it's it's a much bigger <clears throat> thing in that movie. But yeah, it's something Austin's very good at pinpointing these like little like disagreements and just little awkward social interactions and just blowing them up to um, mine them for all their awkward potential. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I'm surprised you haven't seen this. I uh... I know I should. Yeah. I mean, I know it was a big deal when it came out and I just missed it then and I've been meaning to catch up, especially because, like I said, I love the square. Triangle of Sadness, I'm more mixed on, but I'm ultimately more positive on than I think a lot of people. Yeah, I know about one of the scenes in that movie that will turn that has turned me off from ever seeing it. So I'm not going to I'm yeah. never going to see that movie. That's like the center. That's the centerpiece of the film, too. Yeah, um, I will say, though, that film won me over by one of the characters quoting ronald reagan and then going ronald reagan funny guy <laughs> that's just such a funny <laughs> <one>. <laughs> um yeah i i would recommend it but i would recommend i don't know maybe like watching it on like i don't know with with some like blinders or something for that one section because it oh, even when you think it's done it just keeps it like reamps up um but yeah i almost i did almost actually I decided not to because I I feel like I've been breaking our rules a little bit lately, but I almost did go with the avalanche scene just because I find the movie is unique in the sense that that moment is such a pivotal moment for the movie so much so that I, I have trouble thinking about other movies that have that one absolutely pivotal moment that the entire movie pivots around. And so I think this movie is interesting in that aspect that that one moment is so crucial to everything that. Yeah. And even that's unique from Oslin's like, cause the square is not like that. I don't think there's not, um, it's kind of, in some ways the square is kind of the complete opposite where instead of being kind of organized around like one central conceit, it's like a bunch of little stories throughout that add up to the whole. And then triangle of sadness, it does have the centerpiece moment um, with the body <laughs> fluids, but Again, like a lot of it is very much like these other sort of segmented parts and that are very clearly segmented from each other, even though they all connect. So, yeah, it's unique, not just generally, but even within his filmography, this his other films don't really do that. Also, it's a uh, it's cool because skiing is cool. Are you I a like skier? <laughs> I like ski resorts. Yeah, yeah. it's it's definitely... I, I do it like once a year, but oh, yeah. That's the one benefit then of winter. Like you, you put up with all this stuff, but you get to go skiing. I mean, so. I do live in Saskatoon, so it's not like it's easy to go <laughs> to go somewhere where they stall enough to ski. It's fair. Um, <laughs> it's much easier where I live, and I haven't gone since I was in like middle school. Well, there's just like a vibe of like a ski resort a, that's just cool. And I think this scene kind of gets to that, even though it's not like sure. you're not these characters aren't cool in the scene, but you know, there's a cool vibe going on that you're like, oh, I wish I was sitting lounging around having a beer at that ski resort right now. There's a really good It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia episode about that. Is there? The gang hits the out. slopes or they're like, everything's different on the mountain. It's kind of a parody of like crass 80s comedies and like how a lot of that humor doesn't play anymore. Um, 
but it does that actually with some cleverness and wit. It's it's a fun episode. Dennis gets to play an 80s movie villain, essentially. It's great. (laughs) Sweet. Yeah, I uh, this is also a good example. It's one of the more glamorous winter moments in this episode because the other picks we're doing are a lot more like, you know, murderous. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. At the most (laughs) extreme end, but even just like driving on icy roads and like having to have like burdensome coats. Um, My next moment is not particularly like a a nice place to project yourself into. So it's nice to have a little bit of like the actual sort of fun and the sexy side of winter as it were. True. So I mean, snow day would have done that too, but (laughs) yeah, we could have done snow day, but you know, or snow dogs or snow dogs. Yeah. Racing with dogs. What's more, you know, (laughs) charming winter than that. Um, I think Nick Nolte's in that movie. Doesn't matter. Anyway, um, Speaking of Nick Nolte, he's not in my next pick, but my next pick is David Fincher's <laughs> The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which I I adore this film. I think it's slowly become one of my like top five Finchers. Really? It's, it's kind of snuck up for me. Yeah, but it's that's just, probably mine too. It's not like he's made more complex films, more ambitious films, but I don't know, man. Something about this one is just like so watchable and so absorbing. And he's, he's just at the height of his powers at this point. Um but the, so the moment I'm choosing, it's a pretty simple one. It's early-ish in the film when, at this point, Mikkel has come to investigate the central mystery, and Henrik is basically laying out his family and ever all the members of it. So they go outside, and he's explaining who lives where on the island and in what house, and uh, you know he's talking about how like you know this person of the family is a Nazi, and then this guy is another Nazi. Can you believe it? And so and so doesn't talk to so and so, and they don't talk to me because I don't talk to so and so, and that's and one of the reasons because they don't talk. Like it's this confusing family tree and this mess. And uh, Mikkel has you know this line of like I'm quickly losing track of who's who here. And <laughs> Christoph Plummer has a line that's so good. It's it's not sinister, but in the way he says it is used in the trailer for Sinister Intent, where he says, soon you will know us all only too well. And it's like, in the moment, it's not meant to be sinister, but you take that out of context and it's like the most evil thing anyone's ever said. But um, <laughs> I love the scene because it's set amidst this like not full on blizzard or anything, but it's like harsh winter. It's mm-hmm. cold. You know, uh, Daniel Craig is like blowing on his hands to keep them warm because he's trying to write notes and he's freezing. They're so all bundled Monday. up sorry so that was my monday that was your monday yeah you lived this (laughs) recently um you've got the howling winds on the soundtrack and you've got houses kind of lost in the blur of snow and i like this for two reasons one is i think it's just a good way of um distinguishing what is a pretty standard neo-noir scene of like laying out the mystery and a lot of noir scenes are like guys in rooms talking about stuff and it's really like these urban environments very um not claustrophobic per se, but like a lot of closed rooms. Right. In these dark rooms where dark things happen. This is very open. And even though it's not like nice weather, it's very bright because it's, it's yeah. you know, white snow. Um, but the other reason I like it is because even though Christopher Plummer is explaining the family connections, it like Daniel Craig saying, you know, I'm quickly losing track of who's who here. You as an audience do that as well. You're not really meant to necessarily keep track of all these connections in that moment. And I would put forth that while this is a mystery film, it's not the kind of mystery that invites you as a viewer to like solve it with the characters. In my opinion, it's not like Knives Out in that way. I think it's really more about the process of watching the characters solve the mystery and spend time with them. It's not really one 
that I think you're encouraged to actively solve, in my opinion. And the fact that as this history is being laid out, visually too, all the characters are being lost in a blur. Sorry, one second. Sorry, I had to cough off mic. Um, <laughs> but you have all these all these connections in terms of like who's who and who wants what and what's being motivated. On a, and in a certain scene, you might be expected like, okay, I need to keep track of all this. But because everything is being lost visually in this winter blur, I think subconsciously you realize, okay, I don't necessarily need to keep track of all these details. And you really don't as the film goes on. I mean, you can kind of guess who the villain is just based on like the casting. It's not that kind of mystery. So I think it's a good way of Fincher subconsciously sort of signaling to the audience like, hey, don't worry too much about the details. Pay attention to the characters and the emotions and the tone and the imagery. Don't worry so much about how so-and-so relates to so-and-so because that doesn't really matter. And I think it does more in the book. I haven't read it all, but I read parts and... uh there is because it's a book and you can spend more time, they can lay out more of a mystery for you to work through. In a film, even a film as long as this, you don't have that kind of time, so you kind of need to rush it along. But I think this does a good job of giving you highlighting what's really important here. Even if the dialogue is ostensibly telling you plot information, the way it's visualized is telling you the plot's not actually the most important thing here. And I think that's a pretty slick use of winter to uh tell one story. Right. And even though it is the interesting thing, though, is that even though it's open, like you said, and it's not like a murder mystery that's like stuck inside a manor or something. I do think it's interesting that it's all it is still isolated because they all ha they have their private island. And so they're all together on this one island, which I think sort of harkens to that more typical murder mystery, but in its own its own way. And oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah I think it's definitely playing within those like yeah about those tropes yeah and yeah i do think that this line is definitely speaking to the audience itself because there's something intriguing about that even though we don't get all the connections right the fact that you know there are multiple suspects as an audience of a mystery movie even if you're not like you said i agree with you i don't think it's one that you're meant to figure out but by throwing those threads out it kind of connects you to say, okay, cool. I'm in for a neat mystery and it could end up being going a number of different ways. Right. So it's not laid out for you mm -hmm. specifically. Um, I, I can't remember if I read the book before I watched the movie or not. I can't remember if I knew who the killer was first or not. I think I did. So I don't know if I can yeah. speak to how I, I definitely was. didn't. I think I, I might've intuited, Oh, it's probably him. Cause he's a recognizable name in the cast. I won't say who it is <laughs> just in case, but um, but it kind of doesn't matter, like, because it's again, it's not, it's not that kind of mystery where the main thing driving you is like solving the who done it. It's because even that doesn't end up being like the big reveal. There's yeah. still like another act after that with all sorts of other crap to resolve. Um, so, but I think the scene does a really good job of like indicating that visually, and it's something Fincher talks about in the commentary track, not for this scene, but a bit later on when Lisbeth's going through. Uh, the computer of like some of the photos from um, the parade and putting together the pieces where he talks about cutting that together was tricky and the realization of like, okay, we don't need to cut for the clarity of the audience piecing it together. We just need to demonstrate visually that Elizabeth has put it together. How, if the audience actually can or not, that doesn't matter. It, what matters is the character. If we can see that she 
has solved it, that's enough to motivate the action. Um, right. Which is probably why this one ends up being so rewatchable because the mystery elements of it, it's it's part of it and it's it's fun, but it's not the only thing. So it still is as rewarding on rewatches because the characters are so well-defined and the um, the details of the investigation, just of how um, uh, Mikkel and then eventually Elizabeth unspool things is just fun to watch in its own right. Um, yeah. I as agree. much as Daniel Craig investigates a, mis- a mystery instigated by Christopher Plummer as like a genre now, this one is still my favorite <laughs> of that of that subgenre. Oh so. man, <laughs> it's yeah. true, man. I, I don't know why I didn't think it. Like when we were thinking of winter movies, I don't know why this one didn't come to mind because it is very wintry. Like, mm-hmm. and now I think that was a big. Like it seemed like that was a big aspect of the marketing too. Yep. The tagline like, was like, what's buried in the snow comes forth in the thaw or something like that. Like yeah. it was very much playing up that aspect of it. Um, yeah, Fincher knows how to shoot that. Like he's perfect for shooting winter because he's already so cold and precise in his visuals. It's like, <laughs> yeah, you give him a snowbank and he'll work magic. There we go. So. Yeah, it's a it's a great movie. It really is. I'm with you there. Like it, it really showcases how he's able to take material that I mean, I like the books, but let's face it, they're kind of, you know, they're airport they're, reads, they're airport readings. And just seeing how Fincher's able to take that to the next level. And, For sure. Um, Compare it too, to the Swedish film. And I know it's the, the height of uncool to say the big Hollywood remake is better than the original foreign language movie. But in this case, I think it fits. Like that original, that first Swedish film, I haven't seen the sequels, it's okay. You know, it, it does its job solidly enough. It's a perfectly respectable little uh, pot boiler. But Fincher really elevates it just by the strength Absolutely. of his direction and the way he visualizes the story. And also the fact that because he's Fincher, I think he could throw around his muscle a bit more to be like, yeah, we're going to be two hours and 40 minutes. We're not going to try and force this book into a conventional three-act structure. It's going to have this this wonkier because that final act too like the first time you see the film it is it is a bit like shouldn't we be wrapping up like it feels like we're introducing a whole new story but on rewatches it actually doesn't bother me at all because again yeah. you're kind of acclimatized to it um it is a great tragedy that we'll never see fincher's sequels yeah it, and it really makes is. me angry every time i think about it which is awesome. especially because i mean i like the swedish film too i think numi rapas was awesome in the role like i think I I think that she deserved coming more into the limelight after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the sequels to those were pretty lame. Really? <laughs> so it, yeah, especially the second one. I remember the second one. I remember reading the book and the book was just full of really intense tension. And like, you're really worried for the Elizabeth character pretty much the entire movie. And always it's gripping. The reading the book was gripping and the movie had none of that the movie was like no no tension at all and i'm like what but i fully believe that fincher would have found that like fincher would have absolutely tapped into Mm -hmm. into what made that book work so it's really a too bad yeah and i mean it kind of works in its favor because the way the film ends it ends on like a somewhat of a to be continued note but there's the the melancholic end point does work as an ending um like, it's quite striking. And I find it also really amazing that this film that's, like, so dealing in, like, the most horrible crimes possible, the note it leaves you on is, like, such a normal human feeling of, like, rejection. And it stings so much. 
I think that's really amazing. Um, and it does work, but it's like, ah, no, <laughs> come on, give me the follow up. I've, I've been good all year and I don't get this. It's not fair. <sighs> and then they tried to reboot it with, uh, uh, Fetty Alvarez, who's a good director, but I was like, I'm not, there's no way I'm seeing this. No, Can't cross the picket bother. line. Um, so. No. no, yeah, it's, it's definitely winter. No, it's no. a, yeah, I just love that setting. I don't know how long they're there for. It seems like it feels Craig's like it's there may... a while. Is it? Is it Craig a is, good yeah. chunk of the movie? Okay. I think so. I mean, that's I... M- most of my memory of it is like, I, I'm not, I'm not sure in terms of like minutes, but yeah. Daniel Craig enters, I want to say pretty early into that. Like uh, obviously Lisbeth comes in a bit later. Yeah, um, I suppose so. But he's there for a good chunk of the story. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's a neat setting. I like I like that it's remote and I like that it's isolated. Um mm-hmm. I think that adds so much to the to the feel of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing this scene too tells you so well is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so and so is related to so and so and doesn't talk to so and so, but also look how isolated they are and yet also how open and vulnerable he is. And it is enhanced by this the the howling wind on the soundtrack and like that even on a basic level, he's already being burdened by the elements and you add on this conspiracy, how much worse it's going to get. Yep. That's a good pick. I like it. Good movies. Oh, good movies. All four of them. I haven't seen force majeure, but I'm assuming you're right. Cause I like old (laughs) Ruben. Yeah. Yeah. I think you'd like it. I, uh, and I just watched McCabe and Mrs. Miller on Monday. Mm. I think so. Yeah. So I also I rewatched it one day. So we were in sync. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Did you like it? I I liked it. I liked the ending. I didn't okay. like the I didn't like the beginning. I felt it took a long time to pick up. Um, that's fair. I did get into it eventually. Yeah. I famously had to force myself to like this movie. I think on one of my old Q and A videos, I got a question of like, "What's the movie that you think you you feel like you should love, but you don't?" And I said this one. I was like, I've watched it like twice and I realize intellectually it's doing a lot of interesting stuff, but it's never fully grabbed me. But I kind of want to give it another shot. And then and I then like, you oh. notice the coat and then I notice the coat. And I'm like, this is actually amazing. <laughs> uh, but it was like a week later or something. It was like leaving Criterion Channel. I was like, all right, I might as well try again. And I guess third time's the charm. I forced myself into <laughs> loving it and it worked. And uh, uh, Monday would have been the first time I watched it since that viewing. And I was like, is it going to hold up or what did I sort of brainwash myself? No, I still love it. Hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm there. I think it's. Um, I do like that final fight quite a bit. Uh, I like. <laughs> I like that uh, geeky guy that um, the scene on the bridge. Oh yeah, with the real jerk kid, and then the geeky guy. Mm-hmm. I like the that, geeky guy. <laughs> that seems amazing. That's yeah. that's such a great like awkward tense scene. Oh, magical. Good. Okay, well, there we go. Winter. You just need to watch it like three times. And the third time, you'll yeah, force yourself okay. into love it. It's my favorite <laughs> Robert Altman movie at this point. Oof. It's Supplanted Mash. Interesting. Interesting. Sorry, Mash. I don't think it'll ever do that for me. That's fair. I know you're a Mash head. Yeah. Uh, I did I'm, notice this definitely has the same... It went for the same um, kind of background noise mm-hmm. thing that Mash does. Characters talking over each other. Yeah, I definitely noticed that. Which he then really pushes in Nashville, where it's like, right, 
And although McCabe and Mr. Miller, like a lot of the conversations, like you straight up, like people talk like, I couldn't understand it. You actually, you can't. There's a lot of dialogue where you're not, nor are you really meant to. It's just like, and it kind of works for McCabe's character because he's very like mumbly. Yeah. Like every line out of him is like, so yeah, you're here with him about a frog. Like it's just very like (laughs) fragments of a sentence you get here and there. Um, I think it works, but it is like, you kind of need to acclimatize yourself to it. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, should we get into some mailbox? Yeah, I suppose so. We got an interesting, uh, interesting email you forwarded to me that I, uh, <laughs> I had a lot of thoughts about. I think it's fair to say. Yeah. What do we want to do? Do we want to read it out? Yeah, we can do that. Uh, would you like me to read it, or shall? Okay, I can do it. I suppose. Okay. So, um. Listener who I think will remain anonymous to protect the innocent uh, sent this to us uh, on Saturday. My son Robbie is very impressionable and listens to your podcast every week. And he heard Daniel recommend that people start smoking and to be cool like Frankenstein. I think it is totally irresponsible of your show to tell people to smoke. He is an eight-year-old boy. He lit up a cigar just after dinner again tonight. I don't even know where he got them. He just runs around cigar in mouth, arms waving outstretched like Frankenstein, saying, Dan says is good, is good. I had to hide all the matches. He now has dogs playing poker as his cell phone wallpaper, and he won't tell me how to delete it. I barely know how to use email. Please don't tell kids to smoke anymore. So that's the email. There we go. <laughs> we, we, we promise we won't tell kids to smoke anymore. Um. Well, I don't promise that, first of all, to be clear. So I will say this, like after saying, you know, getting this email, take comfort in the fact that after I said what I said, was then blighted with illness that I'm still struggling with. So it seems like God was on your side, uh, <laughs> anonymous emailer. Uh, I will I will say now to any any children who are listening, um, does smoking make you actually look cool? Yes, but that doesn't mean you should do it. <laughs> there we go. Well that, said. That's my correction. <laughs> Thanks for emailing. I hope. Uh, hope to hear from me again. What's Robbie's favorite episode of the show so far? Little Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We did actually get a, a legitimate email. I don't know if we're ready to answer it or not. It um, came a while ago and then we just kind of ignored him. <laughs> yeah, I, we, we can we can try, I think. Let's throw yeah, it out there and just out. see what we can do with it. Yeah, so we got a we got an email from friend of the show, Mike, who's been on a few times. Uh, I think the last one he was on was Halloween with him and Dana, right? Mm -hmm. Slasher films. So he said that sparked by Dan's glowing words of Joe Dante's small soldiers um, and awards buzz on Brendan Fraser's performance in the whale. Is there someone in film that's still living that you'd like to have a late career resurgence? Well, for the longest time, my go-to answer was Peter Bogdanovich. Um, He of course passed away earlier this year. Um, in terms of actors specifically, I don't know if it's necessarily a resurgence because he's never really gone away, but I would love for like Keith David to get his flowers because he's one of the like great character actors. He's such a commanding screen presence. He has the coolest voice maybe of any human being ever. Um, I think it'd be great for him to get some kind of showcase because I think he's really awesome and uh, one of those actors that everyone kind of likes, but he's also easy to underappreciate because he doesn't really get the big showy roles, but I think he could... Work magic with the right material. Yeah, that's a good pick. I like Keith David quite a bit. Um, I 
to stick with uh, thing actors, I would have said Kurt Russell, but I think he kind of has at mm-hmm. this point. He's definitely come back into it. I think for a while there, I would have yeah. said the same with Michael Keaton too, but he's definitely had his resurgence at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Should have got an Oscar, Michael Keaton, but alas, we couldn't deny the theory of everything. Oh no. How Everyone's favorite movie. That's <laughs> the closest I've ever come to falling asleep in a theater. Um, not that it was like the worst some I've ever seen in a theater, but it was so just like, this is exactly what I thought it would be with no deviation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, what about someone like Gina Davis? She hasn't really been in much for a long time. That'd be an interest. I mean, there's a lot of there's definitely a lot of actresses, people who, you know, come from like Hollywood being patriarchal woman turns a certain age. They stop getting roles. That seems to be less of a thing now, but certainly like a lot of 80s and 90s actresses um were kind of thrown aside once they hit a certain age unfairly because yeah i think davis is excellent and uh it would be nice to see her get some kind of boost um someone who's older now and i don't know how feasible it would be for her to get a comeback because she seems like kind of a difficult personality but faye dunaway i think it's easy to Mm, forget you look at her run from 67 to like 78 and she's just incredible like you think about how different her performances are in Bonnie and Clyde in Chinatown in network. Like these are all really different characters and she's so compelling and convincing in all of them. And even mommy dearest, which is the film that, you know, still to this day is like kind of the, the clear delineation point, uh, even though she did some good stuff afterwards, she's great in that movie. It's just yeah. the movie sucks. And, the, and <laughs> her performance is not used effectively um so it becomes like this comical camp thing even though she's actually really committing to the performance um so i'd love to see her get some sort of showcase i don't think it'll happen but yeah yeah because she was on the oscars oh that was the moonlight incident yeah yeah her her and warren Beatty. yep Mm -hmm. that was the last time i had seen her for a long time. Warren was so embarrassed afterwards, he had to hide in his big coat from McCabe and Mrs. <laughs> Miller. Uh, I think Faye Dunaway was also in The Bye Bye Man. So it's like... Oh, dear. Yeah, you know? And I mean, gotta work. Get that paycheck. Like, I'm no judgment, but yeah, like, it's... And there was, there was a couple, like, headlines I saw about her being, like, difficult, and there was something about her, like, doing, like, a stage show where she was kind of, like, yelling at the audience i didn't look into the details i don't know how accurate this is or what the story was there but like there's enough there that like she would probably get the tag of like difficult to work with and because of her age like i don't know and i don't know if even she wants necessarily like the big showcase role but i would like to see it because i think she's excellent and like i like that early run late 60s through late 70s is just even though not that every film she made was amazing but when she was in the right role oh man like she's like unstoppable yeah, that's a good pick. What about like Ryan Reynolds? Has he been doing anything lately? I hate you. I <laughs> I I hate you so much. This is the opposite. These are actors, him and Dwayne Johnson are actors that need to go away. Ryan Reynolds was done. He was we moved on as a society. We'd grown, we'd healed, we were collectively better. And then we had to go and make Deadpool a ginormous hit. And now Ryan Reynolds is like the last movie star, and life sucks. I I will never I will die mad. But a so lot not of reasons, Ryan Reynolds. Then. Not okay. no. Him and at least he needs to go like just away away. Dwayne needs to go back to the to world wrestling entertainment. As a wrestler, yeah. he is one of the most magnetic people to watch. As a movie star, he's boring. He's too nice. Smiling well, happy he's man. So worried about his own image. Like 
That's all he cares about at this point. That stuff about it's like a contractual thing where he can't lose in a movie is absurd. And it's doubly yeah. absurd because you think if anyone would understand the value of like losing to tell a story, it'd be the pro wrestler. Like yeah. that's such a fundamental aspect of <laughs> the storytelling in wrestling. But <clears throat> yeah, um, don't do not like not a fan. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for the emails, you guys. Um, send us more. I will promise to try to check them out more often. Tell us and... what other pernicious habits your children have picked up on account of listening to us. <laughs> we are very interested in hearing hearing about that. That's right. And also tell us about winter. What are your winters like? What winter movies do you like? Actually, if you have winter in California or Florida, we don't want to hear what your winters are like. <laughs> yeah. Never mind. Yeah. If you live in Barbados, <laughs> keep it to yourself. <laughs> Awesome. And you got a new video out, just fresh and brand new. I do, yeah. As of this morning, um, Scorsese by Ebert, How Roger Saw Marty, a video all about uh, Roger Ebert and his uh, his relationship with Martin Scorsese and the reviews he wrote for his films and why, why Ebert got Scorsese in a really unique way that other critics just, not that they didn't get him, but Ebert could zero in on Scorsese in a really precise way uh, and why their sort of, their relationship is important. Um, and their legacy is important. It was a fun one to make. Excellent. I yeah, I haven't had watch, a chance to check it out yet. So got to watch a lot of clips from a lot of my favorite movies. Uh, yes. Ian, I know as like a Scorsese hater, it'll be difficult for you, but you know, where did this come from? Just because I don't like Raging Bull. I mean, that's uh, I, really you just you said it out loud. You don't uh. like Raging Bull. <laughs> Looking at the Mona Lisa, like, oh, it's all right, I guess. <laughs> Oh boy. I think this is the thing. We're too we're too nice to each other on this show. Like taking a page from Siskel and Eber, what made them great is that they were like bitter exes and they fought. Not as much as people remember. Most of the time they actually agree with each other if you watch the shows or their lists and stuff. But when they fight, it's like it's pretty great. So should you call me fat more and I call you bald more or what? I mean that wouldn't make sense given my long hair, but you go for it, you know. <laughs> um I don't know. It's you know what the thing is though. They don't. They would not get personal on the reviews. They would on talk shows. Yeah. There's a bit where like I don't know what show it is, but like Siskel's roasting Ebert for being overweight in all these very creative ways, and then Ebert just points at his head and goes bald, bald. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I love it. I love these two. Yeah, they were fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and my nice. video wasn't part of tribute to Mr. Ebert, and I get. For the second time this year, the last bit is me getting emotional about someone who I like in film is dead and it makes me sad. So I should make something like happier, (laughs) but we'll see. Yeah, as I, I don't really, I never care about celebrity deaths for the most part. Like I never feel anything. I don't know. Maybe I'm just cold hearted like that. I don't think I am. It's just, I'm just so far removed from them. Right. But Ebert, boy, did that hit me. Mm -hmm. I think just because. I just relied on him so much, right? Like he mm-hmm. was still very ever present and with his reviews. Um, yeah. Yeah. It hit me. And he had a way of writing to, I mean, it's very much his style, but like he, he didn't come at things. He was very open-minded about film and would had a sort of highbrow aesthetic, but he also like, not only did he appreciate low art as it were, but he also wrote in a very approachable, like Midwestern style. Like anyone could sort of read his reviews and make sense of them. Um, that 
this is going to sound maybe a bit much, but he it did kind of feel like he was your friend in a weird way, mm-hmm. um, or at least that he was like a friendly voice. Um, have you seen Steve James's documentary Life Itself? Yeah, yeah, that yeah. that one gets pretty harrowing. Like there's there's parts about it that are fun, especially when they're talking about like the show. But you get to the end and it's basically like an extended look at Ebert dying. And it's yeah, not it's pretty rough. Yeah. Good yeah, movie, though. Fair. It is. All right. We'll go check out Dan's video at Eyebrow Cinema and go enjoy winter. If you can. Yeah. If you can. <laughs> uh, I'm Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we'll see you next time. Yeah.